Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Ruby Hinchliffe, Senior Reporter at FT Advisor. And with me today, I have David Ferguson, Chief Executive at white label platform provider Seckle and, of course, the founder of Nucleus. We'll be talking about platform pricing, a topic David is, I'm sure many of you know, particularly passionate about. David, great to have you with us. Hi, good morning, Ruby. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Fab. This week... I wanted to, to to pick your brains, at, really, because, I mean, the platform pricing debate is an ongoing one and there's lots of developments uh, along the way. But I think there's been a few kind of new aspects kind of um, put upon it of, of late. And I wanted to get your your views on them, really. Um, and I mean, I'm still learning a lot about the platform space. I've been covering it for just about a year or so. Um, and, and there's a lot to get your head around when it comes to pricing, I have to say. Um, and I know wonder advisors are sometimes <laughs> struggling to, to understand it. But um, the first, first question I wanted to ask was... Um, there's obviously been a sort of feeling for a while now that the the percentage um, of asset charge model or the ad valorem model um, is perhaps kind of up for a bit of innovation and and change. And I know from speaking to advisors that there is a, a feeling that they they want it to move to to more of a fixed fee basis or a price per admin model. Um, and I recently spoke to, to Chris McCullum at, at Altus and, and he told me for, for another story I was working on that he reckons platform providers operating a business process outsourcing model. So platforms that rely a lot on third parties might be keener to, to take the cost certainty of a price per admin model, um, which I thought was interesting and adds a, a new kind of um, driver potentially for platforms to move to this model. Um, what, what do you think about, about this? Um, I think lots of different models have existed over the years. So we've had, um, you know, in the platform market, the, probably the predominant model is the ad valorem one, as you've suggested. Uh, I think you've also had, you know, quite a gr- various sort of tiering with various levels of aggression and, and even price capping, which does take you in the direction of a fixed fee, you know. So I think uh, I think it's Aegon has got a cap once you go above is it 250 grand or something like that? I can't remember. And then and then you pay no more than that, which I think is uh is an interesting innovate was an interesting innovation at the time, and in some senses takes you in that direction. I think the problem with uh, fixed fees, certainly when they've existed previously in the SIP market, where they really were pretty dominant for years, is they can actually get incredibly expensive and they're incredibly hard to predict what people are going to pay. So you get this thing where it wasn't uncommon for SIP providers to have a tariff, which might have had you know, 15, 20, 30 different types of charge on it, which might have been for, you know, adding you money, making a withdrawal, trading, asking for a statement, all that sort of stuff. And you had no idea really at all how much you were likely to pay over over the course of the investment. So I actually think the model where you've got, and, and the other thing as well is with fixed fees, it actually excludes people who've got smaller portfolios because it becomes extremely expensive if you're paying, you know, say, whatever, £10 a month or £20 a month is, is a really big amount of money on a on a 20 grand portfolio. So I, I actually tend to prefer the ad valorem model, but with, yeah, probably with some pretty sharp tiering and um, and, and maybe a cap on it as well. It seems to me to be the, the right balance between, um, you know, promoting accessibility and making these things available to people, but also not um, not overly cashing in on people who've got more money invested. Do you think like with the the capping that we have in place at the moment across sort of the major providers, um, do you think that 
that could sort of change because we, we saw Novia change some of its pricing, although arguably I think Novia was one of the platforms that kind of out of a lot of them needed to change their pricing because they hadn't in a long time. Um, and I think it has brought some of their pricing more in line with, with some of the other market players. I mean, what do you think in terms of this, the tiering that's in place at the moment with the big the big providers? Yeah. Do you think there's a, quite a lot of room for that to potentially change over the next year? Yeah. Yeah, I think that can go a good bit further. And I mean, people always say, you know, it doesn't cost 10 times as much to manage a client with, you know, to run a platform for a client with, two million pounds is against 200 grand and that and that is true it doesn't cost 10 times as much but it does cost a little bit more because if something goes wrong you know the cost of putting that right is obviously is more expensive and there's you know sometimes different um you know kind of money laundering criteria and stuff gets gets triggered so it, but it doesn't cost 10 times as much and i think there's quite a lot of scope for but i think the scope for platform pricing to fall in general and it may be that the, the way it falls is not just by the headline rate falling but it's actually by i see more aggressive tiering or or cats being introduced because um, you've got this, you know, I think the average advisor platforms sort of blended yield across this whole book of business is probably 20, I don't know, 25, 26 basis points, something of that order, I would imagine. Um, even if the headline price is 30 or, or you know, 35, whatever. Um, so people on average across the whole thing are maybe paying 25. And I think the big question is, well, how does that get down to 15 or, or even lower? And what's the, what are the steps to make that happen? It won't necessarily be the headline price falling as the only driver in that you know so yeah of course I mean it's, it's interesting isn't it because I, I've spoken to uh, sort of chief executives in the platform space like when I, I spoke to Jonathan Gumby over a transact and yeah. he sort of broke down the transact model and said uh, he actually thinks it's really hard for an advisor to to get that if, if an advice firm was to go down the sort of perhaps more customized model where they try and take more control of the fees to try and get them down for clients he, he sort of argued that actually it's really hard to get those efficiencies in place to get uh, price that then undercuts a lot of the big big players yeah. and I ima- imagine you'd probably have have an argument to that being you know where you sit in the market at the moment but yeah. in terms of how you're seeing efficiencies being made um, do you think that it is sort of manageable for advisors to make some of those efficiencies and actually take a bit more control of of their fees yeah for sure I mean I think you've got if you go back a few years you know probably around about the time we were starting Nucleus I think you know, you know, some of the fun supermarkets were probably making the best part 75 basis points if you included all the kickbacks. And I think even in the early days of Transact, when Ian and Mike were getting that moving, I think their blended yield was 65 or some number like that. You know, so we come an awful long way from that sort of number to, say, 25 today. I think I read Jonathan's comment. I think he was sort of saying, look, we can't we can't run Transact for less than 13 basis points or some words to that kind of effect. And, um, you know, I've got huge respect for what they've achieved there, but but I think this becomes a technology challenge. And I I suspect the core cost of running a platform, you know, you've got to do sales and marketing and you've got to make some money doing it and that sort of stuff. I think the core cost is is pretty, you know, middle single digit basis points for what you're actually buying, right? And then you've got to promote it and, you know, have um, kind of, company infrastructure around about it one of the things i think is odd here you've got a a bit of a layering of cost in the market though not so much at transact but um in some of the providers you've got you know an outsourced tech provider and then you've got a kind of big corporate entity on top and when you add up all the bits you get to a number which is you know it's probably substantially in excess of the of the cost of running the actual thing that people are buying i think that's where it starts to get a little bit hard to defend that and you know i think if you look through it um you know, if you look at the firms that are running on, um, you know, some of the big outsourced tech, they're probably marking up 
the outsourced service by as much as 150% <coughs> just, just to do sales and marketing and make a kind of corporate profit on it. And that doesn't feel, you know, that, that sort of thing feels like you should be able to do better and, and people will come in and innovate and do better than that. And, and then you'll see pricing change again. I think that's the, that's the kind of hard bit really, you know? Sure. But, but could you argue that there's, you know, an, why, why labeling and, and well outsourcing? I, cause I did a piece recently on tooping, um, looking at sort of which mm. platforms had moved, um, kind of employees over to, to FNZ. And it was interesting. Some of the comments is sort of suggesting that actually, um, this, this, this level of outsourcing could could help cut costs and, and make the white labeling solution a bit more affordable for advice firms. Um, what what do you think of of that? I think what's interesting when we're when we're pitching to people, you know, we tend to be pitching against uh, people like Hubwise or FNZ or um, uh, you know Pershing, SEI type people. And it's quite interesting that that it tends to be bigger advice groups we're speaking to, but they're never considering one of the existing platforms as their future choice. I mean, it's a long time since you saw a headline saying, you know, XYZ, large financial planning business has chosen, you know, ABC platform where, where that platform is, is, a, is, a, is a renowned provider in that space. It just doesn't really happen anymore. I, I mean, I really can't remember the last time I saw that happen. So I think it's an acceptance that there's a new, the technology has changed and moved on substantially and it's time for something different. And just as you know, the emergence of rap platforms was kind of catalyzed by RDR and the move to financial planning away from selling products. Um, you know, I think this this new wave of digital platforms will be hugely boosted, or has already been boosted, I think, by um, you know, kind of what happened through COVID and just the move to a more digital way of, of operating. And um and also by consumer duty, where if this thing is available and it's is it's better, it's totally digital, there's no paper. All the all the payments are automated through open banking, and the prices, you know, to the customer is half what you're paying today. It seems really difficult to justify paying, you know, thirty basis points for a platform now, or even or even twenty five, because that's you know what you're paying for. You're paying for the corporate infrastructure sitting on top of a, you know, a, a, an outsourced product. And I think in the old days, you know, when I, I, I've never worked on a firm that ran an FNZ, and we we had Bravura there. In the old days, when the technology was less mature. There was quite a lot of effort went in around about that technology to run the platform because the technology was less developed. I think now the technology really should have moved on and and and, and most of the value that is being paid for is, is happening on the tech, really. Um, and if that's the case, the, the cost should fall because the, you know, the marginal cost of every, you know, every billion pounds on the platform is much lower. Yeah, and I mean, where technology is at the moment, isn't there this worry as well that, because we see cycles in the platform space where the tech gets old and then sort of a load of migrations happen. And, you know, mm. we've seen obviously recently quite a few migrations to, to FNZ and then sort of a few to other providers like GPST and, and Revera as well. Um, but FNZ seems to be the one that, you know, in terms of market share, um, it's got quite a significant number of providers uh, in the UK on on their technology. I mean, I don't. I don't know the ins and outs of FNZ's technology, but but talking more generally about the technology these established players are on at the moment, you know, are we going to see another cycle of that technology becoming kind of outdated and then needing to move on to to other tech, or do we think do we are we getting to a point where technology can last longer? Um, because that's the yeah. big trend I've I've seen from the last generation of platforms that it was the technology that was kind of the death of of some of them. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's any doubt that. FNZ won the last 20 years, you know, I mean, in terms of the stuff, I mean, they, you know, created an enormously 
successful large business on the back of you know having corporates uh, you know use their their technology to to be to try and preserve relevance in the market i mean i think it's interesting if you go back most of the companies that are in the platform market now are you know old life companies or asset management groups you know and that that wasn't what was happening 20 years ago there was a really different thing going on where advisors were taking much more control over the proposition using transact or eccentric or nucleus or um uh, novia whoever it was um any or even using you know what at the time would have been standard life wrap and then gradually all those businesses have um either become public companies or have uh, changed ownership in some way that there's probably less control can be exercised now by advisors and i think that's the that's the bigger theme and and, and with the with the the tech durability i think it, it should scale more i mean there's no question i think what you see now is technologies that are you know a single instance single code base you know every single um one of the 20 or so firms that run on circle are all running on the same code base you know, there isn't there aren't two versions of it there aren't 10 there isn't a separate version for every single client you know and that's just a much more modern way of doing it and it means the maintenance cost is far lower and you know if we got to change some it changes for everybody immediately so the, the ability to refresh it and keep it up to date is is seamless and nobody nobody sees that really whereas i think if you've got a big you know big installation has to be made and it's just your version of this then that has different different cost implications and different um sort of maintaining relevance implications i think that's probably the part of the you know part of the challenge yeah definitely. but the, the, the bigger the bigger point really i think for me is it's a tech point but it's also a business model point where you know the market's got very comfortable with this idea that we've got a technology provider which is you know i say fnz has been the big winner um and then you've got a kind of corporate saying on top of it adding a huge amount of cost to the whole process um and it's like the, the real question mark for me is well, what are they doing for the, what are they doing for their you know what they're capturing whatever 15 basis points or something out of this whole thing of, or even more well what are what are they doing for that and it's, it seems to me not an awful lot or, or don't need to be yeah, it's interesting. I mean, kind of different different line of questioning here, but I mean, there could be some big costs posed for platforms coming down the line with with consumer duty um, and and due diligence. And I mean, I, I don't know if I'm a little bit ahead here, but I did a story last week, um, kind of looking at platforms. Um, and kind of FOS uphold rates and things and getting a feeling for how mm. platforms are affected by um by these decisions. And it's and it's interesting because I'm seeing more and more um kind of FOS uh complaints to do with due diligence. Obviously, in the in the piece, it makes it clear that it's only only um, Embark that had a, a significant number of due diligence complaints upheld. But from what I'm seeing behind the scenes, a lot of complaints are being filed against other platforms as well to do with due diligence. And it just strikes me that with the consumer duty coming in, that surely this due diligence point is going to be a big stickler. Mm. And a lot of platforms are not because of the SA rules to, to date have not required them to do too much due diligence um, in terms of where investments are put um, yeah. kind of from, from their platform. Um, but that strikes me as something that could kind of incur some big costs of platforms in the years to come if they need to kind of regulate yeah. that more and, and, and be aware of consumer protection um, in a way that they might not have before. I was wondering what, what you thought on that. Yeah. I mean, I think platforms sit in a really interesting place in the sort of chain because um, unlike anyone else, they, they can see what everybody else is doing and what they're charging and how they're performing. And they can see what 
fees are being levied by advisors. They can see what's happening in the investment management side of it. They can see what DFMs are doing, if they're adding any value. And I think we there is an obligation on everyone in the chain, frankly, where they see um, something that could be detrimental to client outcomes to, 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 to speak about that. And I think you then get into a discussion about, well, who has got... Um, well-developed data infrastructure to do this. So one of the things you see, I think, um, a lot of the providers that sit on top of outsourced tech don't really have a terribly brilliant um, technology function themselves. So they've kind of relied on buying this thing kind of out of a box and not really uh, invested that much maybe in their own technology. And I think what becomes important is, well, can we see and analyze this data in a sort of, you know, more or less a real-time basis and form, um, it's not forming judgments really, but have have an ability to alert other players in the in the space to to problems that might be emerging, and it, it's a kind of partly a cultural thing to say, well, we're not going to say this advice fee is too high, but we're we're going to raise it as a, as an as an anomaly, for example, and, and suggest to the advice firm there might be an issue here. Now, there may be a million reasons why that fee is high on this occasion, and it doesn't it's, it's not nothing to be concerned about, but it's. I say platforms are the only people that can really see that stuff. Another one which actually fascinates me, uh, particularly where you've got a, a lot of platforms run by asset management groups. You know, if you look at the value for money assessments um, that fund groups have had to do for the last two or three years, they're not exactly glowing success stories. You know, they're pretty patchy. And if they are then responsible for, if they own platform businesses as well and responsible for carrying out some form of similar assessment on their peers, that could be, you know, extremely messy, I think, because if, you know, it's uh, I, I, I can't remember which group it was, but you know, it's, it's not uncommon for these to to show up. Um, you know, kind of material misalignment with good outcomes. Really, you know, it's it's, it's a problem. So yeah, and I think so. Yeah, they don't. Have, I don't think most of the firms have got the data skills or data infrastructure, and then maybe the data skills to do that performance assessment. So, and I think what happens as well, and this is why RDR was so important for RAP platforms. I think it's why consumer duty will be so important for more digital platforms because you you get a kind of new technology coming along, which is obviously better, but, you know, people are, you know, people can be a bit intransigent or this is kind of working fine. I don't need to do anything. And then when a regulatory um, kind of tailwind comes along and says that you really do have to look at this again, I, th- I think you'll see a big change in the way the platform market operates. Cause there's a, there's, there's a much more stretching, I suppose, um, burden on advisors to, to think harder about the, the technologies they're using. And I, and I think even on, on advice fees, you know, if you're going to, if we start to see some pressure there, you know, part of the, the job will be to get more efficient within the advice firm. And the best way to do that is to make sure you've got the right technology stack and it all integrates properly. And you can probably still make as much money as you were before, but maybe at three quarters of the customer price. So you, you start to, you know, get an efficiency of the business, which is not so much just about the platform price, but it's actually saying we can deliver advice at a lower cost or or deliver to more people at the same cost, whichever way around it is. And that, that seems to me an enormous opportunity. You know, if you if you look at the positives of it rather than the negatives, um, the opportunity for advisors to, you know, properly integrate technology systems right across their um, uh, both client-facing uh, kit, but also practice management um, kit is incredibly exciting. But, you know, very few platforms are set up to, to play a role in that. It's really interesting because it kind of echoes what Mike Barrett at the Landcat said to me about, you know, uh, avoiding foreseeable harm. Um, and that 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 bonus does come on the, the, the advisor as well as the platform in the sense that yeah. the advisor needs to sort of try and 
uh, gauge whether that platform could cause foreseeable harm to a client if they're going to, yeah. um, you know, embark on a, a tech migration or or change of ownership. They might think that some of that could affect their client negatively and cause a foreseeable harm. But it kind of brings me on to, to another point I wanted to, to cover, which was sort of this uh, concept of, of hybrid pricing, because um, I was at a lunch last week where... Um, Chief Commercial Officer um, Barry Nielsen at, at Novia was talking about the uh, kind of one way hybrid pricing could go, and it was in the bigger context really of talking about microservices, and that that's kind of the strategy that Novia seemed to be taking um, to try and run everything separately so that it's not running as slowly as if you were running it all together. I think that was the sort of high level takeaway from it, and he was sort of suggesting for the benefit of those that might but not have, have read the piece that um, you know. Advisors should could potentially in the in the future be picking up some of that platform fee um, as platforms get better at putting efficiencies into advisors' businesses, perhaps through a microservices strategy where um, they can kind of pick different processes and make them more efficient uh, and kind of add time overall to the advisor's week. Um, and then kind of, I guess, boosting the value of the platform, um, I guess you then have a reason to charge more. Um, but I was wondering what, what you thought on this sort of potential model of hybrid pricing? Yeah. Well, I think there are different uh, bits of technology in the overall chain, right? So there's technology in what we would call a platform today. There's technology in like back office systems. There's technology sitting inside DFM businesses, you know, all that stuff. And there's definitely different ways for that to be arranged, right? So the, the I mean, it, we've got firms that use SECL that, you know, they would just, you know, they can make the platform free and, and bundle it into the advice charge. That's that's possible. You, know, you can do that. You can you could you could similarly do that and bundle it into DFM charge. Um, at the moment, it tends to be the platform charge is discrete, but the cost, for example, of a back office system is include is absorbed inside the IFA firm. You know, that is you know, not, IFAs don't you know they don't charge their IntelliFlow license out to their clients. You know, it's kind of within the cost base of the practice. Um, and I think there's. There's basically an infinite number of different ways to arrange that. Whether it's hybrid pricing, as as Barry's articulated, I don't know. But the, the actual bigger point is that the whole chain today costs typically like 1.8% or something like that. And in some cases, much more than that. And the whole chain probably should be costing 1.2%. And however you carve it up or however it's arranged or how it's disclosed or how it's presented, you know, it is, is important. But the bigger issue is that people are probably not getting adequate value for money right right across the board so you know you, you can sort of rearrange the deck chart chairs a little bit in terms of presenting this thing but ultimately you know clients are probably paying you know 50 percent more than they should be and, and let's work on that problem you know that, that's the real problem here you know definitely do you think that one way of doing that is to kind of add different more paths um that that clients can go down and how they're charged so like fundament i think was quite interesting in what they brought out recently their flexible charging so that you can charge either percentage of assets or fixed fee and you can kind of do that per client depending on their um situation then you can also within that one client if they have multiple accounts then you can charge differently for each account um that seems to be quite a, a sort of nice um broken down level of pricing that i haven't seen before do you think that that could help um, to, to kind of add a bit more transparency and and maybe cut cut costs for for clients. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an extension of the thing we chatted about earlier about um, you know kind of tiering and capping and you know I mean people might have different pots of money for whom for which the advisors doing different things or some of it might have a DFM provider some might not and I think what's been quite interesting is while platforms have you know pretty 
pretty warmly welcomed the tiering of pricing, even if it's not gone as far as it maybe could. Um, you don't really see very much of that in the advisor market, and you certainly don't see it in the model portfolio market or the asset management space. And I think, you know, th- there's no reason why those things can't extend right across the across the chain. And I think if you do that, you start to make material inroads into um, into kind of making this whole thing more efficient. I mean, it seems, you know, it's kind of seems weird to me if you've got a DFM running a model portfolio service for you know, 20, 25 basis points. Well, why is that not tiered with scale? Because, I mean, the, the marginal cost of running that service is zero pretty much. You know, you know, most of them never even speak to the client or have any, any contact with the client. So why can't that be tiered? Well, of course, it could be. And and, and ditto um, advice fees, which is, you, you do see some of that. But again, you could probably see more of that as well, which would which would contribute. And then I say you'll see platform pricing fall generally. And, um, and I think we've probably discussed before, but, you know, Retail asset management still costs four times institutional, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. No, it's absolutely nuts. So uh, you know that that needs to needs to work through as well. So I mean, I mean, kind of, I guess we're coming into the end of twenty twenty two now. So it'd probably be um, good for me to ask, kind of, to round up what you think we'll see next year um, in the platform space. You said that you think platform prices are going to go down. Um, what else do you think we might see in the the platform space? Do you think we'll potentially see a bit more consolidation? Do you think the consolidation's a bit bit done for now? Um, what what else do you think we, we might see next year? Yeah, I think I think we'll see more. I think we'll see much more adoption of you know what I guess have become known as white label platforms. I mean, I, I probably prefer thinking about it's almost sort of embedded digital platforms. But you know, whatever, whatever the language is, I think you'll see much much more of that next year. I know certainly we've got a you know, kind of pipeline of firms that have not announced anything yet, which which I think will be pretty pretty significant. I think when that happens, and then you'll see you know something that's much more digital, much more um, much lower cost, that will raise a question uh, for those who are using uh, what essentially are probably legacy platforms now, although they've got obviously got the dominant market, um, and and how they respond to that will be interesting. I'm not sure consolidation is the answer. I mean, if some of these things have got substantial uh, problems with you know profitability outlooks if their if pricing comes down it's not necessarily true that simply scaling to buy another one and make it is going to make it better right it might be but it, it's not the only answer and you might see just as you saw you know 20 years ago you saw some some insurance companies essentially move into runoff um you might see some platform do the same kind of thing that wouldn't wouldn't surprise me um i mean if you look at the all the m a activity that's happened in the last five six years of the platform space I don't think you could yet look at any of them and go, well, wow, they, they became they became a market leader because of that. I don't think, I mean, you know, if you go back to, I suppose it started with probably Aberdeen and AXA or, or, or maybe um, CoFunds and Aegon. Yeah, I don't think any of these, none of them have innovated or none, none of them have stand out. I mean, what, you know, what Fundment are doing is really cool. You know, that's not a big business that got there because it was three businesses banged together. It's because of, it's because an entrepreneur had a great idea and um, and got on with it, you know. And there's there's no evidence at all that scale drives innovation or adaptability. And we've never seen that in this space. It usually it usually actually triggers a sort of um, you know a sort of slowdown in innovation, if anything. While while these kind of things play out. So yeah, I don't think uh, you might see more. You might see more people doing M and A in order to to you know get scale, so they think they can then get margins into shape. But um. Again, the you know, the profitable platforms in the space, you know, Transact, I think it's been profitable since its first month. And, you know, many of these platforms really struggle to do that because they've, they've had the scale, but not the 
you know, the right business model. Sure. No, it's really interesting. I think you, you did a whistle-stop tour there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. No, that was exactly what I wanted, sort of a round of, of what we, we could see. And I think you touched on some yeah. really interesting points there. But um, unfortunately, that, that's all we have time for today. But um, I, I thought that was it was really, really insightful. And and hopefully you guys listening also also enjoyed. Um, David, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for, for coming and, and sitting on the pod. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, though. Cheers. All right. Bye, everyone. See ya. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.